I've got a dog who loves me and a cat who doesn't care. I've got a leaky back porch and an old creek instead of stairs. I've got a hammock in the backyard and catfish in the creek. And a job that pays me two hundred a week. I've got a rusty old Chevy out back. It's doing time. And the dirty pile of laundry in the sink. Well, it ain't no crime. I've got a broken down clothesline running through my front yard. Sitting in this easy chair sure ain't hard. She gave me three long years, then she said you must pick and choose. But that was ten years ago, ten years ago today. Now she's living in a mansion in L.A. And these Carolina pines, they sure seem fine to me. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, welcome to this special edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. And I must apologize for the little sniff there. I forgot I had the mic open. But anyways, this is Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. I'm the host of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series, and today is kind of a different show. The reason I say that is this is a podcast about acoustic music and acoustic music performers, and the gentleman who you're going to hear today is Mitch Scott. He's a very good friend of mine, lives in my neighborhood. He hangs out at the Frederick Coffee Company in Frederick, Maryland, and he was part of a little crew that used to hang out with my buddy, or our buddy Ken, in the corner and talk about life and politics and you name it, sports, all kinds of things. And back in 2021, when we were still in the throes of the pandemic and we had to keep social distance six feet plus from people had to wear masks in between if we were closer the and you had very little live music and i was interviewing different musicians acoustic performers from my studio in my house but during the warm months so i could see people i would uh, ask performers if they would allow me to interview them outdoors at the shabro stage which is behind the frederick coffee company in frederick maryland we would sit about eight feet apart i'd have my mixer we'd have our Sure, excuse me, Beta 58 microphone set up. And on that particular day, I was supposed to interview John Durant Jr. or Johnny Durant or Johnny Strum. It goes by a different, uh, couple different names. Unbeknownst to me, he had an emergency call that he had to go to the dentist. And he couldn't reach me uh, to let me know he wasn't going to be able to make it or he's going to be really late. So I had set up and I had asked Mitch, who happened to be there at the coffee company, if, if he wanted to see what a podcast looked like to be recorded. His wife was there and a couple other people. So they came out and they sat in the Adirondack chairs about 10 feet from the stage. And we sat there and we're all set and we're waiting for Johnny to, to show up. And about 12 minutes after, maybe 15 minutes after the 
agreed upon start time, I received a text from Johnny saying, hey, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. I had to make an emergency visit to my dentist. I will not be there. And I thought, well, gosh, I'm all set up. And Mitch is a fascinating guy. I said, hey, Mitch, you want to come up and I'll interview you? And he said, sure, why not? So we got up there and his wife was there, like I said, and Jen was there. And I thought it would just be fun for you to hear about someone who's not, not necessarily musical, but who has a, had a fantastic and interesting life. And this is the inter interview with Mitch Scott. So what other adventuresome things have you done as far as maybe skydiving, bungee jumping? I, you know, I never really had an interest in bungee jumping, but I, I have gone skydiving. Um, last year, I did a lot of, uh, well, for a week, I did a lot of uh, kite surfing, which was a total blast. I always looked at it and thought it would be a, a really rigorous sport to do, and it was so physically easy. It, it wasn't that easy from a, a, a standpoint of doing it well, but um, as far as physical exertion, it was almost nothing. It was now, was it, is it tethered to a harness so that you're really not using the strength of your arms as much as it appears to? That's exactly right. Okay. It's tethered right to your center of gravity. Mm -hmm. All your arms is doing is are, are holding themselves up and uh, turning a bar to guide the kite where you want it to go. And then your feet are, are they're not strapped in. They're just uh, in, in the board. They're little straps that you slide them into and you maneuver the board the direction you want it to be and how flat it you want it to be on the surface of the water while you point the kite where you want to go. Sort of like hang gliding. That's what the bar does. You, you move it and it determines whether you, it's actually not, you're shifting your weight rather than the, but it, it appears to be that you're moving the. That's exactly right. And that's one of the big things to get over is, is at least for me, it very much, I felt like wanting to pull myself up with the bar or do something physical with my arms and that's the exactly wrong thing to do mm -hmm. you have to let your arms stay out and loose and and handle it and and have the rest of your your core and your and your legs control the um the board and if you do that you're fine mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like uh, the first time someone uses a, a motorboat where it's a handheld tiller on an outboard and they want to turn right, so they push to the right. Right. And of course, the boat goes left. Yeah. It takes a little while to figure that. Or backing up in a trailer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even it's more kind so. of the opposite way to, to, to turn it. Mm -hmm. Here, you when you start to go down, you want to pull yourself back up, and that just dooms you. Now, when you fall, and the kite is now in the water, how difficult is it to get it filled with air again so that you can continue on? It's really super easy. Really. Well, part of the reason is because um, the leading edge is fully inflated. Ah, it's like a balloon. Yeah, so it floats. The leading edge does. The, the rest of it um, does, does not. Um, there might be some ribs that, that are inflated also on it. And so it's very easy to get the kite back up in there. You, you basically just hold one end, one of the handle ends, and it pulls one edge of the kite up high. So the kite's sitting vertical with one one in in the air and one on touching the water, and then you just grab both ends and fly it up. It pops up. It pops right up. You just have to watch out because you, you kind of have this 12 o'clock point that you don't want to bring the kite through. You want to keep it on one side or the other because it's very powerful. You know, I, I, you, 
when you cross at 12 o'clock, it just lifts you. And it threw me a couple times, you know, like 10 feet up in the air, just like with before you know it, you're flying through the air if you, if you do that. So it must be exhilarating. <laughs> it is. That's a word that's underused in our society, isn't it? Exhilaration. Well, I have another exhilarating experience since you were asking um, with uh, hang gliding. Oh, you, ha you have hang glided? Uh, barely. I'm not sure it really qualifies as hang gliding. <laughs> Hang, hang crashing, maybe. Um, but uh, at, at um, the Outer Banks, at a place called Jockey Ridge, they have uh, big sand dunes, really big sand dunes, like hundreds of feet high. They're really cool. And um, so I, I took a, like a five-flight lesson there. And um, it's very nice. They do a good job. They teach you the safety stuff. And, and they have you on a tether. And they start you at the top of the dune, and you come down, and, and you're, you, you know you want to follow the contour of the dune as you go down, and they're they're teaching you how to flare out and land on your feet, which is really cool. And uh, so you do it the first time, and you don't quite do it, but you learn something, and you do a couple other times, and you get like little teeny turns in there coming down, and then you know I was led, I think you know on my last one, I was like, okay, this. I got to get more than this, so I, <laughs> I, I pushed the bar up to like go up, to really go up to like leave the guy with the tether behind, right? And so, uh, you know, the the slope goes down. If you just go horizontal, you 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 immediately are, you know, a hundred feet above the ground. You're really high above the ground. If you push up, you're even more. So, I pushed up, of course, too much and went into a stall, and I immediately recognized I was in a stall. I was like, okay, I don't want to overcompensate and just, you know, do stall, 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 and, and bad stuff. So I'm just going to pull it down nice and slow, and I'm watching the ground kind of like I'm floating there, but the ground's starting to come towards me, and I'm just pulling it down. I'm just going to do this very compo And then I'm like on the ground, <laughs> and, 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 and there's two guys with shovels digging the, um, <laughs> digging the hang glider out of the sand. Evidently, you weren't watching this, were you? Oh, yeah. Oh, you were watching it. We're speaking to Carolyn off, off uh, mic here. <laughs> yeah, the ground, once you start falling, it's fast. So what was the instructor's reaction? Was it, oh, my God, my kite, or are you okay, sir? His first reaction was, are, are you okay? Because, uh, you know, after something like that happens, that's when they usually tell you, like, yeah, we have more people break their collarbone that way. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> because the big bar in the center of the kite hits your helmet and slides off and hits your, your shoulder. And it did mine. It just didn't break mine. And, and then it's like usually, uh, I don't know if they were just complaining, but it's like usually it's not buried this deep because, you know, you've got the aluminum of it, and it's just buried deep in the sand from going straight down into it. So you are the only friend I, who I know who has crashed a hang glider and lived through it. You, I hope you don't know anybody who's crashed one and didn't. Live Not that it. I personally knew, no, but uh, knew of. Well, that's, that also inspired me to never go jump off one of those big rocks on top of the mountain and hang glide off there. Well, like the one up here in Blue Ridge Summit. Yeah. There's, there's one up there that, and I drove up there one time. I was showing a house, finished the showing. I thought, well, I'm going to find this jump off spot that I've heard so much about. It, it, it's almost like you're driving into nowhere. And you get out, and it's this big rock. And I got up, and I stood not on the edge, but where it starts to slope down, and looked, and went, "Oh, yeah. that's a long way down." Yeah. I would imagine that you don't do that jump off until you've done many of the sand dune ones. 
Yeah, I, I don't see myself ever reaching that point. Now, have you flown an airplane, like over here at the Frederick Airport? No, I haven't. I, I always thought it would be really cool to fly one of those big, long gliders. Yes. Yep. And I, I think that would I would thoroughly enjoy that. I do miss seeing them when they used to tow them up. Yeah. And you'd see them break away, and, of course, they go in d different directions. Used to be a lot more in summer days like today. Yeah, I'm not even sure they still have gliders over there. They've got that whole separate to the, the north side of the airport, that whole hangar where they used to hang out. I, I don't think it's even in use anymore. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. And it could be because of the tower, but I don't know that. It might. Yeah, maybe they just have so much more traffic. I think I saw a, a pretty big aircraft land there mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago. It's, it's, uh, they've extended the runways too, right? They, I'm not sure if they've extended them yet, but they're in the process of. They may have extended because they took away the Waffle House, made them close. I remember that. And that was not to the liking of the owner because that was his most profitable location, evidently, if I recall the, the article in the newspaper. The, and it wasn't so much that it was in the flight path, but evidently there has to be so much space either side of the runway within so many feet from the end of the runway, and that building was the only one that yeah. had to go. Tough luck. Yep. So so what else do you want to talk about there, Mitch? Let's see. Um, I mean, I have all day. I don't know about I, you. I, uh, I have done the JFK 50-mile hike a couple times. Hike or run? Well... I, I think it actually is called hike run, hike okay. slash run. Some people run it. I know that uh, when I first did it in 1972 or three, um, the record was like five and a half hours, which is pretty good. For It's actually not 50 miles. It's 52 miles. So why do they call it 50 mile? I guess it was just easy. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. It's the JFK 52 mile. I don't know. They could do that. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, so how much did you hike and how much did you run? Well, the first time I did it, I used to do it in the spring. The first time I did it, um, I was 11 or 12, I forget. Um, but I, I was... You were 11 or 12 years old? Yeah. When you did it? Yeah. Well, I didn't finish it. Um, but I, I calculated as I was, I was going, that, like I, I could walk five miles an hour, which is pretty fast. It is. And I was like, oh, yeah, if I walk five miles an hour, I can be done in 10 hours. And I think the requirement was that you had, back then, I think you had to be done within 15 hours. So like, ah, this is easy. And I, I also would run. So I would say I ran about half and walked about half. So I was making good time. Um, the, the reason why I didn't finish is because I, I um, well, normally you have people meet you at checkpoints and give you water or different support. Especially back then, there wasn't really much but you had certain checkpoints where people could meet you, and I, I don't think my parents thought I was really serious. I was just a kid, and they didn't, they didn't know, like, I ran my paper route every day to get in shape or that I did anything at all. Did you do that, really? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and also, you know, we walked to school, which was a mile or two, or, you know, I'd run that with my books and that sort of thing, just kind of like the silly things kids do, you know. And um, then... Uh, uh, so when I was running, they they kept coming to the checkpoints after I had already gone through. Ah. And so it wasn't until I was leaving the uh, 36 mile, I think it was Snyder's Landing uh, checkpoint, 36 mile checkpoint that my parents caught up to me. And um, I was feeling pretty good. Um, but 
I hadn't had anything. And they had hot, and it was cold. Did they do it in March? It was cold. And they had a fresh pair of socks, and they had hot chicken noodle soup. Ooh. And I got in the car, and I put on the fresh socks, and I'm eating the chicken noodle soup. And they're like, why don't you just let us drive you home? I was like, no, no, I want to keep going. And, and then I ate some more, and, and they talked to me some more. And next thing I know, you know, they're taking me home. So I was disappointed I didn't finish it. So I, did, I tried it the next year, and the next year was the year that made them change the hike from the spring to the fall because it was 25 degrees and it was raining and I was wearing blue jeans and the water would rain and it would freeze on the jeans except it would be cracked at the joints right. where you're cracking the ice from your motion and it was just horrible and so now my parents were paranoid about not meeting me and so and I'm going slower because you, I mean you're walking through like rivers of ice going up and down the hills and mud and it was just horrible um they went through the checkpoints before me oh gosh I never saw them this time ever <laughs> so how far did you get this time well <clears throat> when I got to there's do you know Weaverton Cliffs I know of it. I don't. I don't. That's never a good been hike. there. You, you should go up. It's yeah. got a great view. Um, but basically, you, you're you start in Boonesboro for this. You hike up the mountain at South Mountain, um, near real near the um, restaurant South Mountain sure. restaurant, I guess. Uh, you you hop on the Appalachian Trail and you follow the ridge, and then you 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 go up to Weaverton Cliffs and then you come down uh, to the canal at Weaverton Cliffs. So there was a checkpoint there. Um, where you cross the road and I was miserable soaking wet 25 degrees and I'm like I'm gonna wait for my parents they aren't here yet only they've already gone and so I wait and there's a certain time they close the checkpoint so I waited there for like 40 minutes for them and they're closing it so I just went well now my muscles were all like right real frozen. tight yeah. yeah and I I haven't seen anybody for a long time go through the checkpoint, so there's nobody close. So I'm running and running and running and running and running, just trying to stay warm, just running. And I'm, you know, I get about 10, 12 miles of running in, and I finally see some. I mean, I was kind of a little scared, you know, because I haven't seen anybody. It's rainy, and I'm on this, like, mud deep. I'm on the towpath now. And uh, finally see somebody up ahead, and I'm like, oh, it gives me incentive. I run, and I catch up to this other guy. And just as I'm catching up to him, we catch up to another guy who's leaning against a tree. And he's, he's frozen to the tree. What? He's, he's not like his body is frozen, but the, he's been leaning there long enough that the ice has frozen between him and the tree. And he's just standing there with his eyes open, and he's not blinking or reacting to us or anything. Ooh, not good. And so we pop him off the tree, and we start carrying him to the next checkpoint, which is at, um, like, the 27-mile marker. And um, so we're, we're dragging him and dragging him and dragging him. Is and he moving at all? No, he's not helping us at all. Oh, gosh. And, uh, and the way that the, the next checkpoint is, is this, just this little road that goes on the other side of the canal from the towpath that you're running on, and it parallels it. And so... You also it, it go back that same way. So it's got a little parking lot. But then, like, the way we're running, if you're exiting that parking lot, you're going the opposite direction from us. 
And so we're carrying this guy, and we're, we know we got to be, it seems like forever, we got to be getting close to the, the checkpoint. And then we see a car going down this pathway, leaving the checkpoint, and we don't see any other cars. So we drop the guy, and we dive down in the canal, cross the canal, trying to cut off this guy. The other guy with me just collapses. He's done. And then I run out, and it's a, uh, you know, a pickup truck with a cab, and it's the only thing left. And he's leaving, and I come out behind him. And I'm running behind him, trying to flag him down. And uh, he finally, like, the brake lights come on. And I tell him about the guy and the other guy, and I climb in the back of the truck, and uh, then I wake up the next day at home. Really? You don't remember anything between? Yeah. Had Did a flu for a week after that. Oh, my gosh. How about the other two gentlemen? I don't know anything about them. Really? No. Don't know a darn thing about them. Um, all I know is, uh, like, it was very nice while I was still sick, like, within a week. Uh, so it, it, uh, it was um, the sponsored, the JFK 50 was sponsored to a large degree by Goodlow Byron. Mm -hmm. He was a congressman. Yes. And he had recently died, I think. I'm not sure. Anyway, his wife came to our house and gave me a 50-mile... Um, like medallion or medallion, something? Medallion, yeah, even though I didn't finish. So that was really nice, I thought. Well, basically, what hopefully what you did was saved the, the fellow who had been frozen to the tree, saved his life, and maybe even the second gentleman as well. I mean, it, I hope they both made it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was 12 or whatever, and I'm not, you know, I didn't actively pursue following up on it, not for any particular reason. I mean, of course, back then there was not like you could check on Facebook or the Internet or anything right. like that. But that's the year that they, they had a lot of people get in a lot of trouble, um, and they moved it to the fall, which was much better. Mm-hmm. So is that the last time you did anything of that sort? Uh, no, I, you know, always kind of bugged me that I didn't finish that. So when I was, I forget how old, 40, 41, something like that. Just a couple of years ago. Yeah, just one or two, maybe <laughs> more uh, years ago, I, I went and did the, the JFK 50. Oh, so you did do it again? Yeah, I finally finished it. Wow. So that was, that was good, but... I, w I would say I was more prepared as a kid than I was as, as an adult for that. Really? Just because you had run during your paper route and things like that? Yeah. You had more time, basically. Well, that and I just have always I developed an Achilles heel issue mm -hmm. uh, in, in my right heel, actually, kind of both, but mainly my right heel. And um, it prevented me from being able to do any regular running or especially long running. I mean, I could do it and then it would be no good. And so I was trying to baby that along and keep that going and work out. So I was trying to do walks and things, and I just didn't, didn't do it right. And I did a lot of things wrong. I, I, uh, I didn't pay attention to my blisters soon enough, so my bottom of my feet just became total one big blister. Ouch. And um, I was really... He was easy to live with for a while, wasn't he? <laughs> I was really concerned about my Achilles, so I had packed my camel back full of protein drink. And I'm trying different, you know, nutrition to get to my Achilles. But I put my ratio of solids was too much. And so although I didn't realize it, I was, I was dehydrating myself. Yeah. And so when I got to about 
the 48 mile marker, you're you're on the road again. You're, you come up off the canal and you're on the road, and uh, it was it was actually kind of interesting because I started the race with my brother-in-law, and he is like, he's the tortoise. He's just steady. He goes the same pace the whole way, and so we started off, and he's going a pace, and I'm. I'm only running on flats for my Achilles. I'm running on flats and walking up and down the hills. And so we're seesawing back and forth and passing each other all the time, except I, I end up going a little bit faster. And after about 20 mile mark, I don't, I don't see him anymore. Um, and then at the 48 mile mark, I, well, so I, I was feeling great at the 22 mile mark or whatever, 21 mile mark, I was feeling great. I'm running uh, and just, making great time and then my Achilles kicks in and then I'm running less and less and less very quickly I'm just walking and there's two heats to to the race one starts at five one starts at seven the slow guys start at five that's when I started so at about the 22 mile mark that's when the the guys who are running and going fast the first couple of them started going by me and, and like I was tying my shoe one time and one goes by and I finished tying it and I get up and I'm like running right behind him, you know, for like 20 seconds of I realize, what am I doing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, after that, I spent the next 30 miles having literally 1,500 people go by me as I'm slowing down. I'm calculating my head. Okay, as long as I keep this pace, I'll be done in nine hours. Okay, as long as I keep this pace, I'll be done in 10 hours. It kept slowing down, right? It was like, I'm actually never going to finish. And, uh, and so anyway, at the 48 mile mark, I'm like walking in front of cars. I'm completely dehydrated. I can't walk straight. I don't know it. You know, I'm not even recognizing it. And, uh, then like I'm walking in front of a car's headlights and my brother-in-law finally caught up to me, pulls me out from in front of the car's headlights. And then, uh, like a mile later, we ran past a, um, a stand that had like, w had water. I drank one cup of water, and I drank more than that, but I, I drank one cup, and I immediately was perfectly fine. It was completely immediate response, which was nice. Yeah. But I will say, in the last mile before I finished, the founder of the JFK 50, um, oh, I should remember his name. It starts with an S. I can't believe I remember, can't remember his name. Anyway, he's whatever years old. He's, he's older, much older than I am now. He's bent over his head as, you know, like permanently cocked to the side for whatever reason. He passes me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was great. It was great to do it. Great to finish. And, and, you know, the support you get on races like that is amazing. You know, everybody is so, like, loving you, you know, like, way to go. You're awesome. You know, for 50 miles of that, it's pretty neat. You it know? is. It, that would be cool. Yeah, it's really nice. So now your your 50 mile is between the couch and the refrigerator, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'll do that one again. So when you, and I know you had a hip replacement fairly recently within the past year, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I asked you earlier, because you rode up on your bike, how are you doing as far as recovering? Good. Good. I have a ways to. I know. I would say I have a ways to go, but I mean, I I played ultimate frisbee last week. Um, I went to the beach as as I told you, and did a lot of body surfing and had a ton of fun in the waves. Went for a lot of walks, um, and uh, you know, been mountain biking a, a little bit, uh, doing 
tennis, playing tennis. So really living a good life. I just uh, am looking forward to it getting completely healed and in synchronicity with the rest of my body, which I can tell, but nobody else probably, I'm, I'm guessing, can tell. Now, do you find that from a mechanical standpoint, you have to do things slight, slightly differently than you used to? I don't, I don't find I have to, um, like, it's not something I need to consciously think of, but like I was telling you before, when I was running after a Frisbee that was just out of reach, and I kind of was like over, overweighted in the front, normally where it would take like two steps to just stand up, my my left foot would move quick, but then my right foot didn't move as quick as I thought it would. So it took me like 10 steps to not fall mm-hmm. because it just wasn't, you know, whatever, strong enough, quick enough, agile enough, not enough muscle build up there again yet, whatever it is. So for those of us who have not needed or wanted to have a hip replacement, who may have to in the future, tell us a little bit about... Um, going in and then coming out and how, how quickly or how slowly the initial recovery was where you were. Cause I don't think I had seen, I saw you, I think on your first or second venture outside the house. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking that was what, five weeks, four weeks, six weeks. Probably at least four weeks, more like six weeks. I mm-hmm. would guess. Um, I, I, you know, everybody is very different. I think you have to be careful that way. And I was definitely different because I saw my doctor. I was very concerned about it after even just a week. And I went to see my doctor, and they're like, oh, it's way better, isn't it? Doesn't it feel amazing now? And I was like, no, it's horrible. And they're like, oh, well, you know, and I don't know. They didn't have a lot to say. It was like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know. And um, so, I, like, the first two weeks were miserable. Like, I, I'm going to really make a huge effort not to get it done on my other hip. I never ever ever want to go through that experience again but you can i know you can talk to other people i've talked to them who've had it done and it's like nothing and they're great and life is good like the next day almost um so that's what i'm saying it, it, i think it varies a lot for a lot of people now was the two-week period that were awful was it because of the pain or just lack of mobility and pain what was it the pain yeah um on a, on a scale of one to ten about a 13 or Yeah, it was the problem was it was always at max level for just like not ending. So he was easy to get along with for two weeks, wasn't he, Carolyn? (laughs) And 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 the other thing that made it worse is is like you don't know what's happening. You don't you don't know is there something wrong? Right. You know, especially when it's like, well, I was fine after two days. You know, it's like, well, that doesn't sound right. And then I also have been injured a lot um, but not had an amputation and a replacement like this one before and so I I wasn't getting the feedback from my body I was used to and the way I was used to and so I, I didn't know what to do to to make it should I exercise some more should I do this it was very weird it was the feedback was different from what I was used to so I I was kind of lost you know you definitely felt completely out of control and don't, you know, you don't like that. Um, now, was did the doctor come up with a reason as to why it was a slower recovery for you, maybe, than someone else? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, they were guessing. Um, a lot of the people that get it done are, you know, a good 15, 20 years older than I am. 
my age. No, I don't think I don't think they're that old. <laughs> Gosh, the last time I went fishing, I didn't catch anything. I guess it hasn't improved at all. <laughs> um, no, I don't know how old you are, but you look uh, more like f within five years of me, I'd say. Um, it, it was more that the more issue that uh, it, it was a, a woman doctor. She had um, more of an issue with the old women having their bones be like butter. And, and, and they didn't have hardly any muscle, so it was easy for her that way. Whereas she, like, first time she saw my x-ray, she said, oh, those bones are great. You know, I can't wait to drill into those. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I'm, between her and me, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe the reason was because I was really making effort to build muscle up around my hip all the way up until the day of surgery. And so they, they started. They stretch your muscles, and my muscles have always been tight. And I tried doing some loosening, but at that point, it, it wasn't a good time to do it either. But and and I think it just ripped a lot of muscle. Um, and took a while for it to kind of be untraumatized. Yeah, and I mean, who know? I you know I wonder about it all the time. What what was so different? It, you know, part of it was like, okay, it feels like it's getting a little better. I can do this thing or just a matter of putting weight on it and it's like oh my god that that was horrible you know a day later it would be horrible and i'm not sure exactly why and i'm guessing it's because i did this other thing where i quote pushed it which i would like not consider it remotely pushing it but i guess it was now mm -hmm. you know i don't know anymore what where zero is um so uh, that's that's my guess and i and the doctor's kind of guess as, as to why it was that way. So how about knee replacement? No. Well, I'm, my knees are doing great. So, I mean, actually, the way I found out about my hip is I went in because my knee was bothering me to the orthopedic. And he's, he's like, yeah, you seem like you're walking a little funny. Let me do x-ray of your hip, too. And so he took x-ray of both of them. And he came back and said, like, you have the best knee I've ever seen. But you need to get a hip replacement. <laughs> and that was 12, 13 years ago now. Oh, it was that long ago. Yeah. Wow. So what does the future hold for Mitch? <laughs> the future. I mean, work-wise, uh, you know, because you're, you're going into the office occasionally, but you're probably working from home as much as you can, I would imagine. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. There's lots of work to do right now, um, more, than, more than I can do. Um, what I would like to do is figure out a way where I'm, I'm doing the same type of work. I enjoy the work I'm doing. Um, for like 24 hours a week that would be optimal and then then that i could start thinking of doing other neat things whatever that might be I, i'm not sure but uh, anything from i don't know trying to invent something to anything i i don't know i just so what from an invention standpoint have you had ideas not really um I mean, I did invent the uh, mountain bike that is postless. Just somebody stole it from me. You know, it's one of those deals where everybody, I thought of that first, but I didn't do anything, you know. Um, but I, I met a guy in Frederick um, in one of those nice houses over by West College Terrace yes. or something like that. And uh, I just met him at his house. Uh, and 
he was an inventor. He, he is an inventor. He, now, he is probably like 85 years old. And uh, he had a business in Frederick. He had, I think, like 120 people working at his business. Wow. For a while. And then he sold his business, whatever, 10 years ago. And his son, to a bigger company, his son's a vice president of this at this company. He kept part of the building that he built. He kept, like, a, a one floor out near English Muffin Way. And... Um, he just keeps it to keep doing fun, inventing things. He's a tinkerer. Yeah. So he goes in at 10 o'clock in the morning, and he comes home at 3 or 3.30 in the morning. But he's there, and he has, like, a guy who comes in and works, you know, that works for him. Like, one guy, because there's some lab stuff and some tinkering stuff. And more than, you know, he he's done a lot of it, so he knows what he's doing. And uh, I think that's a wonderful way to, you know go through life doing doing what you like like that so i have a suggestion is you're probably like many folks you're sitting in your car at summertime you have the ac on you may be listening to the radio windows are up and you don't hear the siren of the police car or the fire truck or the ambulance come behind you because one there's too much noise internally two you don't see it necessarily because there's a car behind you I've always thought it would be a neat little thing to have in every car manufactured and also that you can retrofit. And it is basically just a little electronic receiver that when you're within a half a mile or maybe it's a quarter of a mile and it will, the sound will change depending on whether it's approaching you or coming from behind you. So it's audibly just louder than whatever your radio or your conversation would be to be able to identify the fact that, oh, there's an emergency vehicle somewhere near. I need to pay attention. I think that's a great idea, and I seriously want to work on that with you right now. I have I have ideas on your idea while you were talking. Okay. I, I think it's... I don't have the electronic now that's also, stuff. I have to tell you my other story now because that leads into my other story, which is... You know, this was supposed to be just a little five or ten minute for fun <laughs> thing, Mitch, just so no, you're aware. No, it's not fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I will probably broadcast this just for the fun of it. But tell me what you were thinking about. Well, when I was 17, on the first, no, 16, on the first day of my uh, 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 learner's permit, I'm going to a high school indoor track meet. And my mother is in the car with me. And my mother is five foot tall and puny. Um, you got your height from your dad's side. Yeah, must have. Yes, that's correct. And... Um, and so anyway, first day driving. It's 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'm coming down Market Street, getting ready to turn left into the gym parking lot at TJ. And uh, it's kind of a, a graceful curve to the right to yes. the road, and then you turn left. And uh, so I'm hugging the, the line, getting ready to turn left, but it's a wide road, and this relates to your invention idea which is awesome. Uh, I don't know that there's this hook and ladder coming up behind me until he's right there. I see in my rearview mirror this, this hook and ladder just getting bigger in the mirror and, like, bearing down on me, and it's looking like he's going to try to squeeze between me and the curb on the right. And I'm like, there is not much room between <laughs> us. And so I immediately... I'm coming up on my turn. I'm already slowing down, and I turn hard left. Well, he was going fast enough that he was actually, like, 
swinging around to the left. He oh, was goodness. swinging to the right to swing to the left. So he ran right into the side of the car, turned the front wheel to the left so that, like, I, you know, I've immediately lost all control of the car. And every time he tries to turn left to, like, get away from us, the car just runs right back into him because he's permanently bent the wheels towards him. So he tries that a couple times. And then he goes through a telephone post and he goes through 50 foot or 100 foot or I don't know how far, long ways of the stone wall. Oh, gosh, at the Rose Hill Manor. Yes, exactly. And so I very much appreciate the idea of knowing <laughs> when an emergency vehicle is coming up behind you before they are right there. Well, I'm glad everyone lived through it. Well, yes. My, my mother was quite hysterical for a good 20 minutes after that. I would think so. <clears throat> Gosh, you've had a few experiences, Mitch, I have to tell you. Yes. Yeah, it's been a great life. So before we close, I have to ask you, have you ever been in the presence of someone who you considered famous, whether it's a movie star or an iconic music person or someone like that, or a, a major politician? where you happened to become involved with them for a period of time and either made a fool out of yourself or they made a fool out of themselves because they didn't realize they were in, you know, the presence of a genius. Right, right, yes, they missed that. Um, you know, it's funny you ask that. I n I've never thought about that, but I've, I've never really met a famous person hardly at all. I Besides Ken. Well, yes. Um... I mean, I, I was in a, I really haven't. I, I was in a, um, a taxi at Dulles, you know, one of those air taxis with uh, Jaws from the yeah. James Bond movies. Yep. And uh, I was too scared to say anything to him. I, but he was sitting across and he was very impressive. And then the only other famous person I think I've ever been close to was uh, um, Ted Cruz oh. when he was here yeah. in town. Yep. But I'd never got involved with either of those guys. Well, that's I, an interesting question, though. The um, you know, not that I am a celebrity, other than maybe a very small one because of performing and also doing the dining out television show. I can tell you that both of those individuals probably appreciated the fact that you didn't make a big to do about the fact that they were sitting there, because they get that so much. It is very difficult, especially for movie-type people um, and maybe some of the really huge music icons, to have a normal life. Can't go to a restaurant. Um, when the height of my dining out television show, when my sons were probably middle school or what I used to call junior high school, and we'd go to the you know, Pizza Uno or whatever it was, and in the course of a 45-minute dinner, 10 or 12 people would come up. Hey, I love your show, this, that, and the other thing. You know, can I get your autographs up? And that is in a local cable television right, show. Right, So That's I can... It's probably really nice, too, but then, like, your family is like, hey. Well, and they get used to it. Initially, they go, what do those people want, Dad? You know, and it's... Uh, but I can imagine how difficult it is for someone who is, quote, famous to do normal things. You know, we see these photos in... Um, and many of the, like, the Us and the People magazines of, they'll say, you know, photographer catches Katie Holmes at the supermarket, obviously coming from the gym, no makeup, whatever. And it's kind of like, well, you know, everybody does that. <laughs> it's just that 
I guess most people or some people expect them to come from the gym fully made up and, you know, it's just not the way life is. And I'm sure some of them do it just to kind of hide, especially women, because with and without makeup is because of a lot of makeup and the way some of these glamour makeup, uh, when we see them in um, celebrity shows, there's such a contrast, you know, for men, because most of us besides you and I don't wear makeup. So people don't notice the difference when we're jogging other than the fact that we're glistening rather than, than not. So listening. So no famous people. So how many famous people do you think have seen you <laughs> and said, oh, there's Mitch? <laughs> well, let's see. What did that uh, owl do? How, how many licks does it take to finish a Tootsie Roll? <laughs> <laughs> Zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. I hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks, Todd. And we're actually going to go out with a little bit of music from uh, John Durant Jr., who I will be interviewing the next time. I will send you an MP3 of this just so that you have uh, awesome. have it for, for fun. Okay. I may not actually air it on the show just because it's supposed to be about acoustic music. But has this been fun for the two of you? I've I never would have known any of this stuff about the world. Yeah. All you have to do is ask. Put me on your podcast. Yeah, that's right. Put Mitch on your podcast. So we're going to go out now with a little bit of music from John Durant Jr., Elevation Road. It's a song that his dad, John Durant, affectionately known as the Troubadour, wrote the lyrics. And John Durant Jr. I know him now that you, the Troubadour, now I, I yes. put it all together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice guy. But uh, he wrote the lyrics and John Durant Jr. did the music. And we'll listen to a couple minutes and then we'll cut it off from there. Great. But thanks, Mitch. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Too bad you girls can't hear the music. It's really good. It is. Got a little George Harrison in here. It, it is a lot, yeah. Every day I walk right up to strangers on the street And tell them things about my life I think are really neat I tell them what I've eaten and what I'll do today And as I pour my soul out they turn and walk away. Well, thanks so much for listening. Mitch, again, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Well, thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Wispy and Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. And the one thing I did forget to mention, I think, at the beginning of the show was the song that led into the show is one of my songs. We're probably about 90% into the final mix we do need to add a little bit of percussion but that song was titled fine to me i want to thank mitch again even though this is a couple years after we uh, met at the shabro stage and i want to thank you folks as listeners for listening to the wispy mob music acoustic radio podcast series produced by me todd middle initial c walker I produce the show in my home studio in frederick maryland all the music you hear is played by permission from the artists if you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or, of course, you can find it on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.